0: Hello, I'm Don Durham, and welcome to Patent Pod. We're here at the National Autism Conference, joined by Dr. Francesca De Espinoza. Thanks, Francesca, for joining us on Pod today. Thank you for inviting me. We're so excited to have some conversations with you. I want to talk for a minute about some of the work you've been doing. You've been doing a lot of work around sequences relative to social and verbal skills for students with autism. That's right. Um, and what I want to think about, what are some key elements for a curriculum to address when we're looking at social, communicat- social communicative skills for sh- students with autism?
1: Well, it's It has to be a major element of our curricular objectives. (coughs) What uh, really distinguishes autism as a disorder uh, from other types of uh, disabilities, and developmental disabilities, is that it's really a disorder of social learning. Mm. It's not the intellectual impairment per se that's the problem, and language, although it's impaired, is not the primary deficit the main issue is is the ability to learn within a social context. So if we think of social context as really the kind of realm in which, the arena in which we move as humans and learn many skills through social interaction to maintain social interaction, so these skills emerge as a result of that interaction within the social environment, then if social stimuli are either um, diminishing, diminished in value or irrelevant as they are typically in Mm -hmm. autism, with individual variation of course. Then you can see how all learning that normally occurs within the social context is necessarily, as a consequence of that, Mm -hmm. also reduced or impaired. So um, I think any curriculum that specifically aims to address the learning needs of this population, and I've only ever worked with children with autism, um, has to address the issue of learning within the social environment. And we can pretty much teach anything through un- understanding contingencies, and we can pretty much bring most behavior to occur under stimulus control with tangible reinforcers. Mm-hmm. Reinforcers are unrelated to the social interaction. Um, but the question is, should we? and should we place our efforts in trying to develop a technology that establishes social stimuli as relevant and important um, that then can um, enable to enable the child to acquire the skills that are normally learned through social interactions through the sort of um, more conventional means of acquiring them rather than contrived teaching situations and i think it's a Big challenge for us mm-hmm. to do that, and it's one that we haven't really tackled. Um, and so, understanding what social stimuli are, what qualifies as social motivation, what qualifies as social attention, and why it's so valuable to most of us um, will provide us with a good basis to then develop a sort of framework of objectives that attempt to address that. So that's what I talked about this week, and it was mainly about establishing early social responding mm-hmm. and looking at people, because they're interesting, as the first and the earliest social response. So the, the first operant response that the social environment, the first response of the social environment can acquire operant, con- operant control over. So if we establish that early on, the value of people then we may save
0: ourselves a lot of trouble, trouble in later. So really, really honing on the fact that it's social learning and it's the context, and, and as you had said, learning more about that and, and really kind of harvesting that knowledge to go through and to build frameworks that would show the relevance and the importance of that factor. Yeah, so um,
1: if we think that most of our learning occurs in the social context, if those stimuli are not Important. Sure. Then you're not going to approach them, and you're going to be deprived of many opportunities. The environment is going to be not going to be able to provide you with those opportunities. Mm-hmm. So if we can kind of establish the value of social interaction very early on, and responses that recruit social interaction as a reinforcer, and are maintained by social interaction and occur because of that. So these kinds of early responses would be looking at people because Mm -hmm. they are valuable, um, because when you look at them, good things happen. Um, Joint attention skills, responding to social cues and smiles and variations in expressions, Mm -hmm. showing things. So we can do that with very very early learners, um, through something that's called Joint Activity Routines, which is a model borrowed from um, an intervention model called the Early Start Denver Model. And um, But if we superimpose on this an analysis, of uh, an applied behavior analysis, then what we have is something called social behavioral chains, where we can um, sort of get children engaged in this kind of chains of interactions in which what I do will evoke um, behavior on your part to then get me to do more of that. The What distinguishes social stimuli as reinforces from inanimate objects is that social stimuli derive the reinforcing functions from actions of others. So the, the sort of Function is the same as inanimate object. They can increase behavior. They can Mm -hmm. strengthen the relationship between antecedents and behavior. But there's a fundamental difference. And it's that unlike inanimate object, they um, derive their functions from the actions of other people. So we want to establish the Mm -hmm. actions of other people as meaningful and necessary to achieve what the child wants. So when we say we're mediating reinforcement, we mean that we become the only people through which that reinforcer can be achieved. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in in very early interactions, we do that through social sensory routines, um, where, for example, if the child likes movement, spinning, he can't really spin by himself, and he can't tickle himself (laughs) and generate the same response. And so we build these kind of routines so that there are signals that he's now expecting and we pause, and the child may give us an anticipatory response, may look up, may signal with a gesture that he wants the, he wants more. the thing mm-hmm. to continue, and so we can establish this kind of this kind of interactive dance that goes back mm-hmm. and forth uh,
0: and shared control. I think that those are some some important facets to remember. It's that um, building up those social interactions and encouraging and and recognizing when we need to continue with that, with that process. I want to pivot here for a moment. I, I've, I've been told that you have said that effective instruction means that students are verbally present. Help me understand, what does that mean by verbally present? What, what are you trying to say there? Um, it's
1: actually effective learning. So the, I, and I know exactly um, who became fascinated by this term. because <laughs> it,
0: It's Mike Miklos. Um, <laughs> He has shared with me that this is something he hears you say often.
1: He does hear me say. So often, I want to ask, what, I- I- what do you mean by in that? In a specific context, actually, in that, uh, and and it really sort of it builds upon this notion that we're not just passive listeners. Hmm. When we're in school, when we're you know um, listening to someone giving a lecture, or um, when we're receiving classroom instructions, we're not passive receivers of information. So, listeners, effective listeners, um, are also active speakers. Except that they're speaking; they're the only ones privy to their own speaking. Mm. So, by being verbally present, what what we mean what i what I mean is that, as events occur in the um, in in the sort of daily activities of the child, the child has how do we know that the child is contacting those stimuli, that he's actually engaging with the environment? Because you could be sitting in a classroom and look like you are,
0: mm-hmm. you are engaging,
1: <laughs> but actually you may be engaging in verbal behavior under the skin that's completely irrelevant, that doesn't correspond mm-hmm. to whatever is happening. So I kind of talk about being verbally present present in the context of, um, um, for example, reading comprehension, listening to mm-hmm. a story. Um, you know, how do you know that your child has paid attention? Um, and you say, because he can answer questions about the story that he's r- that, that's been read to him. But, but that's after the event. So what happens during the event? What, mm-hmm. is, what is the child doing? Um, and there's no behavior that you can actually see other than he's looking and sitting and looks like, but you don't know that he's actually paying attention. Mm-hmm. And how do we define that? So it's sort of verbal behavior about the ongoing event. And if you deviate too much from that, so kind of multiply controlled tacting, a complex form of tacting, then y- you, you have daydreamers. Have, uh, you have, you, you stop listening. If I start now thinking, okay, well, I'm going out for dinner while well, I'm talking, you're asking me a question. My verbal behavior doesn't correspond to well, what's happening here. What's mm-hmm. happening in the environment. Then I'm no longer verbally present.
0: So okay. it's that internal talk that you're doing. Is it present and relevant to what's happening outside so the social yeah, interaction? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And mm-hmm. it's, a lot of verbal behavior does occur under the skin at a certain point. And so I guess the, um, the example I give is um, with regards to what people may traditionally call memory mm-hmm. or the behavior of remembering. What is responsible for that? How do we define it? And so if I ask someone, well, I can see you're married. And if I asked you, do you remember your wedding cake? I do, yes. Can you visualize it? I can, yes how many layers it had, what color it was, mm-hmm. the, decora- the, well the various decorations, mm-hmm. okay. And now I'm going to ask you, can you remember, and I don't know how many years ago you were married. 17, it was wild. Right, <laughs> so something that happened so long ago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay. But if I ask, you, okay, can you remember the birthday cake that you may have been given five years ago?
0: Yeah. Still I mean, I can make though, a guess. <laughs> no, yeah. Okay. So why? You would say? Doesn't hold as much sentimental value,
1: perhaps. Okay, yes. We have to define sentimental mm-hmm. value. So p- some people say, well, it's not such a salient event. Mm-hmm. A wedding is something that occurs, hopefully, not many times in one's lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> um, One would hope, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but where is the control for that? You know, mm-hmm. do you have a mental image that you pull out or you know where is it where is this behavior of remembering and it's it sort of there are kind of two processes at work the behavior you engaged in at the time of the event mm-hmm. and the behavior of recalling that event the kind of problem solving that you're going through mm. okay um uh, you know maybe visualizing the pictures and so on and so forth And so there are these kind of two distinct behaviours. But unless you were present uh, during the event, not just physically, you're unlikely to be able to recall it at a later stage. Because basically what you're engaging in recalling is in verbal behaviour that's not entirely novel. Because you've already engaged in verbal behavior at the time of do you, you talked about it. Hopefully, as you were cutting the cake, mm-hmm. <laughs> you were thinking and talking <laughs> to yourself about the value of you what you were doing the and the exa- event yes. and the cake. Yes. And he and had both uh, sort of elicited mm-hmm. the event, a lot of kind of condition, a lot of sort of emotive responses, as well as a lot of verbal behavior. You were verbally present, and as in your verbal behavior, private verbal behavior occurred in synchrony with the actual event. event. So think about mm. children in the classroom who are often subjected to lengthy uh, verbal explanations. And then they're unable to recall any or only some facts, despite you know, having mm. good language understand. That's mm-hmm. for all students. And the teacher says, you weren't paying attention. But maybe okay. it's that internal verbal But what's probably response. happening is that teacher's behavior doesn't hold as much interest for the child. That's one explanation. Mm-hmm. For him to engage in behavior that corresponds to that. And so when we're listening, we're doing a lot of things. Sometimes we're echoing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're transforming um, uh, what someone is saying in ways that's more understandable to us so that we're able to say the same thing Um, we may be visualizing um so there are a lot of things that are happening um that we're doing and that's what i call being verbally present is engaging in covert verbal behavior Mm -hmm. um that corresponds to the event that's ongoing it may be a visual event so you're observing and tacting what's happening as well as a, a verbal event where you're kind of engaging in a cascade of verbal responses from echoey to introverbals you know saying things in different ways and when you understand you're doing exactly what you're doing right now
0: <laughs> nodding which is and, and giving nodding. some kind of symbol mm-hmm. absolutely well so that leaves me though and then how do we how do teachers promote the acquisition of these verbal repertoires effective verbal repertoires how do we promote that in our classroom and our students Okay so there's a, a lo- you know there's a history
1: of sort of you know um, th- there's a long history of technology for promoting active listening mm-hmm, okay. or active student responding so there is a technology there are specific procedures which involve in sort of simple terms sort of delivering frequent checks and opportunities for the child to demonstrate learning mm-hmm. with the material that's just been presented um, so The way we work, and I work a lot in Italy, which is my country of origin, where we don't have special schools and we don't have special classrooms. So the children are all in, you know, all children Mm -hmm. with a a variety of multitudes of of disabilities are educated in the mainstream environment. Now this holds both advantages and disadvantages. Um, uh, But uh, what we have found, so we can't, Coral responding is not something that we can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just, it, it doesn't, um, it, it's too novel. It's not, it, it, teachers have their own way of teaching, and it tends to be a very didactic model. Uh, so with a lot of kind of passive mm. learning, as they call it, there's no such thing as passive yeah. learning. Um, so what we do is we do something called listening checks. Um, so every couple of minutes... Um, And this is obviously for the learners who can access um, some um, sort of traditional teaching Mm -hmm. in the classroom. So if the teacher is, I don't know, talking about um, the parts of a plant in a science lesson, then we'll, we'll cue our learner to listen. We'll just say, make sure you're listening. And then we run every couple of minutes a listening check, which is, um, a question, generally, about the material that's just been presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it'll be an observation check, so, you know, asking him what he's looking at. And what we do is then we differentiate, reinforce uh, the responses that the child gives um, as demonstrations of whether he's listened and paying attention, so if he's been verbally present. And over time, we, um, we make these listening checks um, less frequent, so the child is having to remain present for longer, longer chunks, chunks of, of time. time. Mm-hmm. But this way, then, we establish this kind of chain of events where to get that point, I need to be able to answer the question. To answer the question, I need to be paying attention. And we give them strategies. We teach them sometimes to echo. Sometimes we provide keywords on a board. So there are a number of strategies that we can put in place to ensure that the child is maintaining contact with the material, with the teaching material, when we can't actively get the teacher to establish um, sort of
0: corresponding and active sort of listening. So holding these listening checks or these observation checks really allows us to every couple of minutes kind of ascertain whether or not our kiddos are being verbally present. That's right, um, but also it allows to us es- to extend that time yeah. then too.
1: Yeah, and also to establish it in itself because all the precurrent behaviors
0: necessary to get the answer then get established as part mm-hmm. of that reinforcement contingency. So there are some aspects there that we want to be thinking about when we think about applying this to instruction is is um, embedding and implementing some of these listening observation checks, so as you said, every three, every few minutes, but then kind of pulling away that that yeah. scaffold and, and extending the time yeah. period to eventually we get to a, a pretty decent chunk of time where yeah. this, the child is able to be verbally present. And therefore, actively engaged in this learning and the process. So I, I think yeah. that's good. Good pieces of advice to give. Yeah. And sometimes what we do is we teach children to take notes. Mm-hmm. So we'll cue
1: them and say, "That's a good, you know, take notes." And and so they're not being asked the direct questions, but they're having to write down kind of what they what, synthesized. What they, yeah, yeah. Just sometimes it's just keywords, and then they use those as cues to recall.
0: I think that's ah. good strategies for any student. Right, you know, whether it's a student with autism or just a yeah. student in general, at any grade level, in any yeah. age, le- age level, to be able to do that too. So I think that's a good, good piece of there.
1: You know, one, um, one story I tell my students is, I said, well, if you think I'm boring when I'm talking, you, gotta, you, know, you, you, you should have met some of my professors. <laughs> I, wasn't a very, I wasn't a very good high school student. I <laughs> scraped by, I went to Italian school, it's very hard. Um, But I scraped by, and uh, but university was a different ball game. I Mm. kind of really had to be, um, you know, to learn to pay attention. And some lessons they're just not interesting, so they have no no reinforcing value. And the value of escape into kind of my own Mm -hmm. verbal behavior was very very high. And so to self manage my tendency to kind of daydream and not be verbally present, I made myself be verbally present by taking notes because you can't be thinking of something, you can't be having covert verbal behavior and take notes at, at the same, same time about what's going on. And so that's how I made myself engage.
0: So I think that's, I think that's interesting to think of us as an adults, um, and young adults, and, and, and you know, who may need that help with knowing and recognizing that sometimes they're they're not as verbally present as we'd like them to be. So I think that's good. I think that's good information. I want to ask you this, and we ask this of all of our guests that visit PatentPod. You know, we want to inspire educational growth in those who are viewing and listening to this episode. What advice might you offer to those who are out there um, to grow uh, professionally? Um.
1: And. I, 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 there's quite a lot of advice that I can give. I can tell you what I have found useful, um, in that I received very different training in Europe than most people, most behavioural analysts receive okay. here, um, uh, in that I um, kind of had a multitude of mentors that I kind of have had to seek the attention of kind of independently, because mm-hmm. it, it's just very different. And doctoral programs are very different. Um, so. Um, my su- and the one thing I learned um, from a very young age was not to be afraid to ask questions. Mm. And, you know, attend conferences. Um, and don't be afraid to go up to the speaker, whoever that person may be, and ask questions. You may not want to do it in public, but there's no such thing as stupid question. So don't be afraid to do that. Um, and I could give the sort of standard advice to read. Um, and if you're going to be reading, my suggestion would be to read outside our field and to, because um, there it is interesting stuff out there and I think it's mm-hmm. important that we challenge ourselves in terms of applying our science in understanding um, how other people have viewed the same phenomenon. And um, we tend to complain that we do not sit at the table of mainstream psychology. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons is that we um, tend to be very presumptuous about what we know compared to other people. And we tend to have our own vocabulary and terminology that unless you have had such a high level of training is incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. It may be English, but it's not. It holds no kind of um, stimulus control over someone who doesn't have that repertoire. And I think sort of we... We have to be able to communicate with professionals who may view the same phenomenon in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the other thing is sort of read outside our science and apply the behavioral lens to the way other people have, may have described the same phenomenon. Um, and I, I found that invaluable. I found that very, very useful and it was made by my teachers read outside behavior analysis and understand how other people have looked for example at joint attention, mm-hmm. um, how other people have described memory. It doesn't mean that we renounce <laughs> what we do, but we have to understand also what other science, how
0: other disciplines have looked at the same thing. So I think that idea of challenging yourself and reading outside of your field, and then going back to that, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask about it. Don't be afraid to, to kind of question it and say, well, I'm pushing back a little because I'm not sure. So creating that cognitive dissonance is not a bad thing. Uh, to be able to grow, I think that's and a good uh, thing.
1: And, and we all love to talk about hard work. So, you know, we always welcome Mm -hmm. questions and they're wonderful opportunities for us as well to um,
0: sort of give back um, to the field and um, to students. And I think a place like the National Autism Conference is a great opportunity for folks to do that, to come and approach speakers who maybe they've never heard before, have read something about, but be able to go up and ask them. And I think a place like this is such a welcoming environment to do that. Um, and I know, I'm sure folks have, have come to you throughout your sessions today and in other days that have done that. And. We've heard of other other attendees who have been speaking with um, presenters. So I think that's the key piece: is don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Oh, I think that's great advice. Thank you, Francesca, for stopping by thank Patent you. Pod today. We so appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks you very much. Thank you to all of you in the field. You inspire educational growth in your students every day. A special thank you to John Ragsdale for producing this podcast. We'll see you next time on Patent Pod. <laughs>